Well, maybe uh, you remember this from high school literature class, but when we talk about narratives, so when we talk about the way that, that descriptions of events are put together in a story, um, there is, there's often a distinction made between dynamic characters in a narrative and static characters in a narrative. Uh, static, a uh, famous example of a static character in the storyline who don't really change as things unfold. So a uh, famous example of a static character is Sherlock Holmes. There's, there, there's a lot going on as his detective adventures are told, but Sherlock Holmes himself doesn't really change as the stories unfold. He, he pretty much stays the same. There's not really personal development or transformation within his personhood, though his adventures themselves are dynamic. But Sherlock Holmes is a, is a static character. Another famous static character would be Captain Hook and Peter Pan. He's the same bad guy in the beginning as he is all the way to the end of the story. There's no change in Captain Hook. Uh, so there are these static characters that just don't change at a personal level over the course of the story. Uh, but then there are also dynamic characters, these characters that do change. Uh, and one of the most well-known dynamic characters in literature would be Ebenezer Scrooge. In, in A Christmas Carol, in the beginning of the story, of course, he's hard-hearted, he won't give anything to anyone, but by the end of the story, everything is different. Uh, he's, he's generous and, and willing to give, so he's a dynamic character. Uh, so in narratives, we recognize this as part of characterization. There are these static characters, and there are dynamic characters. Um, now, as, as we study the narrative of John's Gospel, we basically find that every person, every character or character group that Jesus interacts with in His ministry is a dynamic character. Change is going on, which of course is no surprise to us because they're confronted with uh, the great agent of change Himself, the Lord Jesus. Um, and, and sometimes what we see in the narrative is that the change is actually negative. So for example, uh, some Jews who appear to be positively interested in Jesus at one point in John's Gospel uh, will, will seem to move farther away from Jesus as he ultimately refers to them as being of your father the devil by the time we get to chapter 8. So, so there's dynamic movement there. It's not, it's not good, but it's movement. Um, however, many characters in John's Gospel move in a positive way. Um, a good example of this from the very beginning was the character Nathaniel back in chapter 1. And you remember how when Nathaniel first heard about Jesus, he asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Jesus is from Nazareth. Can this, can this be anything really meaningful to meet this man? So he started there, but then after an interaction with Jesus, we ultimately find Nathaniel saying, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Huge movement for Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth to confessing Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel? And, and we see that all throughout John's Gospel. John is, is constantly introducing us to dynamic characters, including this Samaritan woman whom Jesus meets at the well. And John introduces us to dynamic characters purposefully because John's intention for us as his readers is that we would be dynamic uh, interactors with his account of Jesus' life as well. Uh, John's very clear about this, remember, from chapter 20, where he says that these things about Jesus are written. Why? So that we can remain static? No. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see, John's whole purpose for writing this gospel is a dynamic purpose in that his desire is that we as his readers wouldn't be static, but that we would be moved in belief, and not only just moved in belief in Jesus, but moved from a place of death, lost in sin, to belief in Christ, which leads to eternal life, moved from death to life, the most dynamic transition we could ever have. 
Um, and, and so that's what John is desiring as, as we as his readers would be interacting with, with the, the gospel that he's recorded here for us in these events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And again, it's this dynamic nature of movement that we see taking place in the life of this woman at the well from Samaria. Uh, Jesus engages with her in order to ultimately uh, help her see that she has a need that transcends anything physical she's experiencing, and it actually transcends, transcends anything spiritual she may be considering or trying to understand. She has this need that's greater, and Jesus is moving her to see that He's actually the one who can provide for that need. So in this chapter, the woman is moving from a position of not knowing who Jesus is, not recognizing Him for who He is, to ultimately a place of, of trusting in Him so significantly that she bears witness to Jesus in her own hometown to the great effect of the belief of many by the end of the chapter. So she moves an extraordinary distance. And it's John's intention as he writes his narrative that in the movement we witness in these characters, in this particular character, it's John's intention that we ourselves would be moved by this. Um, whether that movement is more initial for us, maybe being moved from a place of not knowing Jesus to a place of trusting Jesus significantly for the first time, or whether that movement is more along the lines of renewal for us, being awakened again to the significance of who Christ is for whoever will trust in Him. Either way, John's dynamic characters call for our dynamic engagement with this truth about Jesus. So then coming back to John 4, in the, in the process of the woman at the well, in the process that she's going through, we see something of our own process. Growth in the knowledge of who Jesus is, is what we're being moved along in. And that, of course, is that's, that's what we need, because it may be in your Christian life right now, or it may be at other times throughout your Christian life, uh, that you found yourself to be more of a static character in your discipleship process. We have those seasons of life. We, we face them from time to time where you're trusting in Jesus, but other things have, have crept in and just seem bigger. Uh, other elements of life have encroached and seem more important, maybe, than, than following Christ but with steadfast faithfulness and a, and a stagnation can set in in our lives with regard to our, to our following of Christ. And if that's the case, or as you reflect on historical times, maybe where that's been the case, we can recognize that a passage like this is uniquely helpful in that the truth that's here can serve to awaken us again to the realities of who Jesus really is for us, whether it's seeing that truth for the first time or needing to be renewed in the truth for the 171st time, the fact that Jesus is the one who brings the satisfaction of eternal life. We need uh, these, these seasons of renewal. And so, as we're we're back in John chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we continue to, to work this out. Um, last Sunday, we looked at Jesus and the woman at the well in verses 7 to 9, specifically focusing on the distance that existed. So that's where we spent our time of study last week. Jesus is the one who engages this woman, and despite all the barriers that might seem to exist between them, and you remember there are, there are many barriers that would otherwise seem to exist between Jesus and this woman of Samaria, despite that, Jesus shows that He's the one who comes as the genuine seeker to find lost people. He bridges those gaps. Uh, so last week it was Jesus and the woman at the well and the distance. This week, uh, we're going to focus on 10 to 18 where we have Jesus and the woman at the well and the gift, the gift that Jesus speaks to her about. And uh, so we'll start in on verse 10. First of all, you can look at verse 10, and we'll think about verse 10 under the heading, a better question, a better question. In fact, I'll just read verse 10 
Uh, no, I won't. I'll start in verse 7 so we catch the flow of what's going on here. It's not a better question if we don't hear the first question first. So starting in verse 7, and then we'll get into verse 10. Uh, we were told there, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus says to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Here's her question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For, John tells us here, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So there's, there's, a, there's a better question there. Uh, maybe you've, you've had the experience of being in a, in a training session or a classroom setting and you've asked a question and based on the teacher's response, it becomes pretty obvious that there was a better question you could have asked instead of the one that you did. Um, and in, in a way, though gently, in a way, that's what's going on here. Uh, if you remember from some of the background we studied last week, the fact that Jesus is interacting with a woman from Samaria is, is already culturally and religiously and politically um, quite abnormal. Uh, this isn't a normal category of interaction, and the woman is recognizing this when she does ask her question. So, so she says to him, well, why, you know, why do you want me, a Samaritan woman, to draw water for you, a Jewish man? This is an abnormal interaction that we're having. So she asks a very reasonable question in that sense. Um, it would be very strange and unexpected for a Jewish man to be asking something like this of a Samaritan woman. We talked about that at length last week. Uh, her question is reasonable, but now Jesus counters her question uh, here in verse 10 by simply urging her to ask a better question. He, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So Jesus is saying there's a, there's a much better question you, you could be asking here. If you, if you really knew who I am, if you really knew what the gift of God was offered through me, you would be asking for living water. Now, in the context of the day, living water was a, was a common expression. It wouldn't have immediately had more spiritual connotations like it does for us. I, I don't think we would ever even use the, 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 the phraseology there unless we're speaking in spiritual terms. It's, it's just become colloquial part, part, in a colloquial way part of our language. But living water in this setting was a way to refer to water that was flowing. So, so for example, well water is not flowing, right? It's, it's, it's sitting at the bottom of a well. And living water or free-flowing water would always be preferred to well water because it's more clean. Right? It's not, it hasn't gotten stagnant in the, in the heat. Uh, but, but in this geographical environment, living water, fast-moving water, it wasn't very accessible, so wells were the choice program. And here at this non-moving water source, Jesus picks up on the imagery that, that presents to, to, to them in their conversation, and He offers the woman living water. And, and, and while there's this distinct physical meaning to the phrase, we know that Jesus is implying something of much greater significance and that He's not just offering the woman a, a secret insight into a free-flowing stream that's nearby where she can find a, a cleaner, fresher water source. Jesus is speaking of living water in the context of offering her a gift from God, as He says here. And, and, that, and that word translated gift that John uses, it's just good to know that, that that term only pops up 11 times in the entire New Testament. And every single time it's used, it's connected with something graciously offered freely to us by God in connection with salvation, every time it's used, right? So, so for example, the gift language is used twice by Paul in Romans chapter 5 to speak of the free gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's the gift idea. And, and the gift of God that Jesus speaks of here in chapter 4, he likens it to living water. But then later on, verse 14, we read that Jesus actually connects it to eternal life itself. So this gift is a potent term that Jesus is bringing to bear on the conversation here. And in, and in that, he's also picking up on common language of the day, language fitting for a conversation around a water source. But as we know, Jesus isn't really concerned to speak about, to, about getting a drink. He's, he's speaking about God's gracious gift as this living water. And so it's useful to know that, uh, that this living water, this thirst kind of language is a metaphor that runs all through the Old Testament Scriptures in connection with the satisfaction and restorative grace that God's salvation alone can bring. Uh, and and it, it pops up in many different places, but for example, through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, God actually refers to Himself as the living water that we need. In the book of Zechariah, living water is what purifies us from sin. Uh, throughout the book of Isaiah, we have lots of references along the lines of quenching thirst, uh, in Isaiah 44, to come to the Lord and trust in Him is to be satisfied and not hunger or thirst. Isaiah 55, we read things like, Come, you who are thirsty to the water so that you may live. So there's a reference to God's restorative, thirst-quenching grace there. Uh, Isaiah chapter 12 is, is, is especially interesting where the prophet speaks about the day of God's rescue for His people. And he says, on that day, you, you people, you, you people of God will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I'll trust in him and not be afraid for the Lord. The Lord himself is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. And then Isaiah says, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name. So, so, so by using the language that Jesus does here, he's directing attention away from the mere physical need that has brought this woman to a well and toward a deeper need, the deepest need that we could ever possibly have, namely the need to be cleansed from our sin and, and by the gift of God's grace uh, be brought to a place of peace with him. Right? Jesus is speaking to something here that brings satisfaction uh, beyond any other kind of hope the world can offer is this true satisfaction of the gift of God's uh, reconciled salvation, which we read about in other places too. John's writing in Revelation chapter 7, where we're told that those who are in the presence of the Lord who have been rescued, we're told they will no longer hunger, they will no longer thirst. Right? The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. There's this final and complete satisfaction picture there of peace and rest that comes for those who are saved by God. And it's that greater satisfaction that we ultimately find ourselves longing for, that true thirst-quenching satisfaction, true rest, true peace that transcends the parched conditions we face in a fallen world with fallen hearts. We long for satisfaction. A pastor of an earlier generation, he commented along these lines, and I want to read you what he says. He, he makes this comment. It was, this was written over 100 years ago, but it still rings true today. He says, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. Why else this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure, the turning from one form of it to another with persistent and unwearied diligence? 
Why this eager search for wisdom, this scientific inquiry, this pursuit of philosophy, this ransacking of the writings of the ancients, and this ceaseless experimentation by the moderns? Why this insane craze for that which is novel? Why? And then he says, because there is an aching void in the soul, because there is something remaining in every natural man that is unsatisfied. So we, we long for satisfaction. And as we'll see, this woman at the well searched for that satisfaction. In her case, as she searched for it, it was through her relationship with men. We can search for that satisfaction in so many different ways, but it doesn't come. The, the comedian Jim Carrey, he has that quote, I'm sure you've, you've probably heard it, but he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We long for satisfaction, we long for true peace, we long for nourishment, but it evades us. And Jesus, He comes and He, he seeks us in our lostness, just like the woman here, and He says there's actually a better question that we can be asking. He says, ask of me, and I'll give you living water that satisfies. I'll give you the gift of God's salvation. I'll give you ultimately this, this peace of knowing you're not alienated from the living God, but instead you're cleansed of all guilt and sin, adopted as His child, empowered by the Holy Spirit, secured in a heavenly hope that will never fade. There's a sense in which that sounds just glorious to us. This is what we need. However, we also have to recognize that for some, maybe for us, certainly for us at different times, maybe in our lives, there's also a sense in which this kind of notion might be a bit off-putting. Come to me, I'm the one who will give you the gift that you need. In fact, in fact Jesus' comment here seems to be off-putting to this woman. So, so if you look at the passage, we move from a better question in verse 10 to a critical response in verses 11 and 12. In fact, maybe critical is too soft a word. We could almost say something like a cynical response or a scoffing response on the part of the woman. So if you look at verses 11 and 12, we read it. She says, Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you catch the tone there. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who I was, you would ask for living water. The woman responds and says, who, who exactly do you think you are? I mean, this, this well, the history of this well goes back to Jacob the patriarch, well, one whom the Samaritans, even in their syncretistic religion, held very, held very dear to them in, in their religious framework. So, so if Jacob and his sons needed this well, and by the way, you don't even have a bucket well, who exactly do you think you are, Jesus, speaking to me about this living water? Do you actually think that you're better than Jacob, the patriarch of our faith? So, so we hear the, the scoffing tone in the woman's response. The New Testament scholar R.T. France, he describes the woman's response as incredulous. Right? She, she, she's thinking to herself, how could Jesus speak this way? You're not greater than Jacob, are you? And by the way, he, he sure seemed to need this well. Who do you think you are? Of course, the irony is that Jesus is greater. But the woman is not there yet. Instead, she's critical, she's cynical, she's even, even scoffing at the notion that Jesus could provide something greater than the one who's gone before. But in this, we recognize something that is very consistent with our human condition of spiritual thirst, not least of all as it relates to a consideration of the claims of Christ. 
Because so often this is the question that follows after some aspect of Christ has been presented. So often the question sounds just like this, who exactly does Jesus even think He is? You're telling me that Jesus is the one I need? He's not really better. He's not really better than the meditation I seek to involve myself with early in the mornings with my group. The relief of financial wealth and a cure of free sexual expression. He's not really better than the relief of financial wealth and accumulated possessions that promise joy and define my professional ambitions. He's not really better than finding that perfect companion. He's not really better than, and we fill in the blank, with with whatever is attractive to us at the moment. Because quite frankly, Jesus is just not that impressive to me. He's not the one in the news making a difference. In fact, so much of the time, it seems that His followers are the less thans of the social and forward-thinking movements. So Rick Phillips, he makes a comment along these lines of how people think about Christ today. He says, Jesus is not someone they take seriously because He does not head a powerful organization or command worldly resources, as they would think of Him. The people who matter are those who allocate riches and promotions or who provide valued goods and services. Despite His unparalleled religious status, Jesus is of very little earthly good. Jesus did not bring any advanced technology and cannot compare with people who really matter. Jesus says, here's a better question. Ask of me, and I will give you living water that really satisfied, the gift of God Himself. And we say, who do you think you are, Jesus? You know, we're sitting at this well, but you didn't even bring a bucket. And how does Jesus respond to this reaction from the woman? Is He done with the conversation? We almost wouldn't blame Him if He was. Okay, fine, if you don't want the glorious life I offer and will bleed on the cross to obtain, fine, get your water and go. Is that how Jesus responds? Well, no, of course He doesn't. We have to remember, He's the one who closes the distance. We're not the ones who close the distance. Jesus closes the distance. If our stubborn unbelief was enough to turn Christ away, we would all be eternally and pitiably lost, but that's not who Jesus is. He's the seeker of stubborn scoffers. Thanks be to God. And so because that's true, as we keep going now into verses 13 to 18, instead of ending the conversation, Jesus promises true satisfaction. He promises, true, uh, he promises eternal life. There, there is a, a wonderful aspect of Jesus' patience reflected in His interaction uh, as, as He interacts here. Remember when we first started John's gospel and we spent some time on the on, on various aspects to watch for as we look through the book, some thematic elements. I think we spent two sermons on it, which was already one more than I was planning to. If we got to spend more, we'd have to take one sermon and just spend it on the patience of Christ in, in Jesus' interactions in John's gospel with all these various people, just the patience of Jesus. Right? And, and we see that, uh, we do see that play out a little bit here. Um, he, he's not done with this lady, even though she seems pretty done with him, even turned off by him, but he's not done. Instead, he explains things further. Um, in verses 13 and 14, if you look at those verses, you see that, that Jesus clarifies what He's offering, first of all. So, so He's not offering water that will, will provide a kind of temporary relief, as the water drawn from the well will do, but instead He's offering water that's going to quench thirst in a lasting way. He says, you'll never get thirsty again. In fact, what's going to happen is this water that I will give will spring up uh, for eternal life for you. So life unending is where this water, what this water is going to produce. Um, 
Again, Jesus is speaking in these obvious cleansing categories of forgiveness, reconciliation, all of these truths that God has promised through the Old Testament, which will be climactically procured by Jesus at the cross. Um, the, the waters I'm talking about quench a bigger thirst than this well can help with, is what Jesus is saying. Uh, it's, it's the waters that, that quench the eternal thirst of redemption. So he explains this further, and, and, and then things get, keep going in verse 15. It's clear that the woman still doesn't understand. She's still not making the connection in verse 15. Actually, much like Nicodemus back in chapter 3 didn't understand the spiritual truths that Jesus was speaking about using, using uh, the metaphor, you must be born again. You remember, he's speaking, to, he's speaking to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus uh, doesn't understand the spiritual truth of the physical metaphor, and he asks, well, can somebody re-enter into their mother's womb? Like, what, what are you even talking about? And here we find the woman kind of in that same place. She's not understanding the spiritual truth reflected in Jesus' language. Verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water. Why? So that I won't get thirsty and have to come to this well anymore. Now, what you're speaking about, Jesus, that actually does sound like kind of an attractive proposition. It could be a really big time saver in my chore schedule. So she doesn't get it. Nicodemus, who Jesus calls the teacher of Israel, he didn't get it either. Now, there's just a, a small point of encouragement there as we, as we ask ourselves, or as we even ch check our own history, our own maybe present circumstances, asking have we found ourselves at certain points in our, in our relationship to Jesus to to, to, to feeling like we genuinely don't get it. I read the truth of Christ, I hear the truth of Christ, uh, but, but quite frankly, it's not landing for me. I'm not comprehending all of these things all the time. If that's the case, we can be encouraged because we're in the company of people in John's gospel who are highlighted as exactly the kinds of people whom Jesus comes to and who come to know the peace that Christ offers. Not getting it, not, not understanding at some point along the way seems almost to be a prerequisite for the grace of Christ. So we can be so discouraged sometimes simply because we can't connect the dots. I, I need to understand it all before I can really put my trust in Him. And, and we say something like, you know, I know what you're saying, Jesus, but it's just not quite landing for me. I don't understand. And if that's the case, we take uh, this passage to heart, take Nicodemus's situation to heart, because that's been a lot of people's experience before us, and these are exactly the kind of people whom Jesus sets the saving power of His love upon. Confused people. And we see him do that here, though, though he does do it here in a way that might cause us to flinch a bit at first. So, so watch how Jesus does this. Jesus says, I offer the water of eternal life, you'll never thirst again. The woman responds by saying, that sounds nice, I would really like to not have to keep coming back to this well. So she's not getting it. Jesus then presses further, verse 16, uh, why don't you go call your husband? And then come back. And her response in verse 17 is, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus replies, I know what you've said is true. You don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands, and now you're living with a man to whom you're not married. You see, what's happening here is that the woman has been considering all that Jesus is saying in mere physical categories. And what Jesus does, knowing the individual conditions of our hearts as he does, he directs her attention away from what's superficial and maybe a mere, a mere spiritual or physical interest. He drives her attention to a much bigger concern. He directs her attention to her sin. Whatever the cause of her relationship failures, it would appear that the satisfaction she longs for, she's been searching for in a companion, 
and it's been a series of heartbreaks and failure, ending in the immoral condition of living with a man she's not married to. So the woman's need is not a drink of water. The woman's need is cleansing and forgiveness and true life, which is exactly what she comes to understand as the narrative goes on, which we'll get into later in our studies. But if we just take a quick jump down to verses 39 to 42, we have the woman who leaves the company of Jesus, tells people in her town all about Jesus by referencing this specific moment. He told me everything I ever did. Right? He's the one we've been waiting for, she says. So she wasn't seeing her real need until Jesus confronted her with her sin. And upon seeing her real need and understanding the truth of Jesus' salvation offer, clearly, as the narrative goes on, she is compelled to tell others about it, and she did so effectively. Many believe, the text says, down in verse 39. But, but you see, what had to take place is, is she had to be moved from thinking in finite, physical, ordinary categories to start thinking in terms of deeper needs. She, she required forgiveness and the life that Jesus alone offers, that cleansing water. And Jesus brought her to see that reality. And, and this is ultimately how, how we're moved effectively toward belief. Remember, we're not, we're not static in our relationship to Jesus. We're dynamic. And, and we move toward Him, we move toward the eternal life He offers, the life He came to die uh, to procure for us. We move toward that life, not by thinking in superficial, this world kinds of categories, but we think in categories of our, what we could call our transcendent condition of condemnation because of what we've done, the thoughts we've thought, what we're born into in our sin nature as we stand before the righteous bar of God's judgment. We're condemned. What, what we've thought would satisfy has only ended in further hurt. We know those experiences, and not just further hurt, but further, further alienation as we move further and further from trusting in God, thinking these things over here will help us. And what we really need is the promise of life everlasting from the one who comes to us, promising uh, His cleansing power. It's interesting here how Jesus speaks directly to her moral condition, isn't it? I don't know if He was in a seminary class on apologetics if He would get full points for this assignment. It's so contrary to the expectations of our day. In our day, you know, one expectation is, is that if you really want to help me in life, if you are really going to be an instrument the universe uses to bring me forward in satisfaction, if you really want to do that, you must affirm whatever direction might seem best to me. You must call good what I say is good for me. That's one expectation of our day. That will bring me along in satisfaction or so the story goes. And then there's another expectation that, that we run into as well, which is actually the flip side of that, but which is still very, it's still very present on the other side of, of the coin. So this isn't the, you must call good what I say is good for me and affirm all of that. On the other side, we have people saying, stop fussing. So you just need to stop whining about things. Right? To quote the Eagles, get over it. Right? You're making the most of a losing streak. Some call it sick, but I call it weak. You know the song? It's a good song. But you're hurt, you're not fulfilled, you feel the damage, just get over it. But that doesn't help us either, does it? That's no help at all. There's no life there. There's only deeper hurts and damage that we can ever climb out from under. And so in our quest for satisfaction and renewal, this is what's, this is what's offered around us. You feel a sense of lostness. You're deeply unsatisfied, feeling, feeling the shame and dirtiness, hopeless, weak, lost. So it's either affirm everything I say is good for me and call it good, or it's get over it and stop fussing, but both are hopeless. What does Jesus do? Well, he comes to us and he says we need to speak a bit about sin. We need to address the fact that you've been, what you've been hoping in 
is contrary to trusting in the God who made you and gives life. And so Jesus says what you must do is acknowledge that you've turned from the one who promises life. Jesus says acknowledge the lostness, the transgressions, and turn to me and find refreshing streams of cleansing living water, which will, which will cleanse you, which will satisfy you, which will relieve the shame you feel, and, and this rest will come as you bask in my love for you and the eternal status of perfect righteousness that I give to you. This is the gift. Nothing else can satisfy, but that kind of eternal reconciliation offered through the cross work and the resurrection of Christ alone. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who died in 1990, uh, he, he was a very notable and, and successful English journalist um, in, in politics. He was involved in politics too, but after, after a lifetime of pursuing many things, he ultimately turned to Christ near the end of his life. And, and so, so what I want to do is I want to read for you something, how, how he describes what we've been talking about here. And he writes this near the end of his life. This, this is what he says. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission into the higher slopes of the tax brackets. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated, so I persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our times. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers. This gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so to, to drink of the living water is to come to Christ and say, I thirst for something beyond what this world could ever offer. I thirst for the cleansing and reconciling power only your cross can provide. It doesn't mean no hardship here. It doesn't mean no pain here. It doesn't mean uh, that, that, no, that, that everything is going to be restored and be perfectly in the time in which we live in this life. But it means our future is secure and the power we need to continue in a life of hope will be present for us day by day, moment by moment, it is, as His mercy endures in our lives. We come to Him and we say, apply the satisfaction, Lord Jesus, of Your grace to me and let me never thirst again. And so here's Jesus and the woman at the well and the gift. It's a gift that's there for all who come to Jesus. Do you see that in verse 14? Whoever drinks, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Whoever is you, whoever is me, right? So, so let's believe the Lord Jesus. Let's keep believing the Lord Jesus and be renewed in the reconciled life and eternal satisfaction that He gives. This is the gift that we need. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, we're thankful for Your Word, and we ask that You would uh, renew our hearts by this truth. We confess, Lord, that often we, we, we do look for satisfaction in other places. Uh, we may consider Christ in moments, but then often think in practical ways that satisfaction will come as we pursue other things. May we find rest in Christ, and may we find that sufficient. We know that what He's done is perfect and eternal and lasting. It's hope for today and it's hope that is 
ongoing. And we pray that we would be resting in that in a way uh, that is faithful to you and in a way that is empowered by you, knowing we need the help of the Holy Spirit for this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.